we've never personally met, uh, as Anthony said, my name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here. And every so often, I get the opportunity to share with you what God's teaching me in his word, how he's challenging me, and I'm excited for what I get to share today because we're talking about a really interesting topic this morning. Today, we are talking about our minds and the thoughts that we have rolling around in our head throughout our days. And the goal of today is that we would actually grow to have a mind like Christ, that we would actually think like Christ. So that's where we're going today. But in order to get there, I think what we really need to do is first figure out where our heads are at right now. So I want you to engage with me in a little exercise. I would like you to get out a worship folder, a piece of paper, uh, maybe a phone if you want. What I want to do is take a minute, maybe a little bit more, and ask you to write down all the thoughts that you can remember that you've had so far this morning. Okay? So example, like, I don't want to get out of bed yet. Um, I'm cold. What's for breakfast? Should I wear this shirt? Why is my kid always losing their socks? You know, like any of those things. Should I go to church today? Where should I sit? I like the worship song. Tony's shorter than Anthony. You know, like any of those thoughts. And I want to give a minute. And then whoever writes the most down actually is going to get a little prize. Okay? So there's something on the line here. Okay? Everybody ready? I've got my uh, writing utensil right behind me. So I'm going to do it too. And we are going to take about a minute. Everybody ready? Any mark? Get set. Go. Okay, who had more than eight? Did you have more than eight? Okay, more than 10. Leave your hands up there. More than 12? 13? 15? 15, all right, you are the winner. Let's give a round of applause. Guess what she wins? The prize all the time at Riverview, fruit snacks, there you go. And also the satisfaction of a job well done. So good job. All right, so everyone look at your list. Look over your list and um, think about what we have there. As I look over my list, I see that a lot of these are kind of self-focused thoughts. Um, you know, I'm, I was writing, I really hope this goes well. <laughs> you know, that's a thought that I had in my head. Um, I'm thinking about how I have to fix, you know, this headlight. I'm kind of hungry currently at the moment. Like a lot of those different thoughts. Um, if you're like me, you may have also had some thoughts that were self-focused. And actually, a lot of the thoughts that we have in our lives are really often about ourselves. I did some research this past week, and I don't know if you knew this, it was new for me, but the average human being has about 30,000 thoughts every day, and a lot of those are about ourselves. And this is such an interesting phenomenon. There was actually a study that was done in 2018, so not long ago, from Meyer and Lieberman. It was published in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience, and they proposed this theory about why people think of themselves so often. So, according to this study, there's a certain area of our brain in the medial prefrontal cortex. It's called the Broadman's Area 10. Okay? Everybody with me so far? It's okay. We're going somewhere. There's a place in your brain that does something. Okay? This is what we're talking about. So, this specific area is sort of like the default network 
area of our brain. So it only gets activated when the brain is at rest, when the brain is not engaged in some external demand. So this gets activated when we're not working on a particular task. What they also found through brain imaging is that this specific area also lights up when we think about ourselves. So it lights up when we think about ourselves, and it, thinks, and it lights up when our brain is at rest. So what they concluded is that really the brain's default, our default wiring is to think about ourselves. And this is not a brand new development. Uh, as we're going to read today, the church in Philippi was dealing with the same issue. They were thinking about themselves. They were focused on themselves. But Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, knew that God had more for them, and I know that God has more for us, too, in the way that we think. And so that's really where we're going to go today, looking at our thoughts and trying to line our thoughts up with the thoughts of Christ. And so, if you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 as we continue the series we've been in for the last few weeks. As you are finding that in your Bible, I would just love to pray before we actually dive in to God's Word. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for your Word. God, because uh, you didn't just leave us here and say, figure it out, but you've given us your Word and your truth so that we could know you, so that we could know more of who we are in you. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use your spirit and your word to conform us to the image of Jesus in every area of our lives, but specifically this morning, God, that our thoughts would line up with yours, that we would see life the way that you do. And Father, um, I just want to say to you, I know that my words, if it's just left to themselves, no one's heart's going to be changed or touched. Um, No one's going to be transformed. It's only your spirit that does that. So... Holy Spirit, I pray that you have your way in and through me and soften our hearts to be able to receive the truth of your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. So just a little context so you understand where we're at. In Philippians uh, chapter 2 verse 1, it's actually a continuation of a thought that Paul had previously shared at the end of chapter 1. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, you may remember Anthony uh, talking about how Paul was calling the church to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what that really means, uh, Anthony talked about how that's kind of a term that's uh, uh, connected to citizenship. So what Paul is saying is like, don't live like a citizen of this world, but live like a citizen of the kingdom of God who has been transformed, who has been completely changed, who is able to live a different way. Live your life in such a manner that the goodness of Jesus and the power of the gospel is on full display. Okay, so he had just said that to the church. And he also said, if you live this way, it's not going to be easy for you. I mean, if you believe in Jesus and you choose to give your life away, there's going to be suffering attached to that. Okay? Because the world is not going to know what to do with you. It's going to be hard if you choose to give your life for Jesus. So he just said that. And now he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
complete my joy by being of the same mind. See, there it is. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So first of all, we have to remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the church in Philippi. These are people who know Jesus. These are people who have surrendered to Jesus. These are people who are living for Jesus, and they're facing persecution because of their love for Jesus. And so these are people that really knew Jesus. And so to this group, when he asks all these questions, the answer is always going to be yes, and Paul knows that. So he says, have you felt encouraged and comforted by the love of Jesus? And their response would be, yes, I have. Are you encouraged by Jesus' work in your life? Yes. Have you experienced any affection and sympathy from Christian community? The answer would be yes. What Paul is doing is he's asking them to look back into their life to the times when they experienced the goodness of Jesus. Because remember, contextually, they're in a really hard place of life. Like they're facing persecution right now, and as we all know, when you're facing something really difficult, you kind of tend to think about what is so difficult. You think about the struggle. But Paul is reminding them, hey, go back to who Jesus is. Go back to what he's done for you. Be, be reminded of how he loves for you and use that to propel you to keep following him in the midst of a really hard time. Okay, that's what Paul is doing. And so he's asking them those questions. And I want to start there with us too. If you're a follower of Christ, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, Think back on your life. Are there any times where you just felt like, I know God loves me? Are there any times where you felt like, I've experienced like the power of His Spirit working in my life? And if you really are a follower of Christ, your answer to all those questions would be, yes, I've done that. Yes, I've experienced that. And if you've never felt that before in your life, if you've never really felt the love of Jesus, then I want to encourage you to talk to one of our staff because he is a great guy that you can't got to get to know. Because when you know Jesus, you know love. When you know Jesus, you know peace. And if, you, if you've never experienced those things, maybe you need to really meet Jesus and surrender to him. So this is what Paul says. If you can say yes to any of those questions, if you can say yes to any of those questions, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What Paul is saying is that if you've experienced Jesus, if you know the goodness of Jesus in your life, then be unified together. Church in, in Philippi, be unified together. Church in Ashland, be unified together so that others could see Jesus. Remember, that was Paul's whole passion in life. And this is the big deal. This is why he wants unity. It's when the church can live in unity, a church of diverse people from different backgrounds. When the church can live unified, it shines a spotlight on the life-transforming power of the gospel. Let me say that again. When the church lives in unity, it shines a spotlight on the life-transforming power of the gospel. And why is that? Because look around the world that we live in right now. Like, unity is not the norm. If you see people that are together, but they come from different backgrounds, and they're loving each other well, and they have the same mind to put each other first, that is going to speak volumes to there's something real about Jesus. There's something real about the power of His Spirit working through people because they're not like everyone else. See, so that's what He wants us to get. Be unified in mind, in heart, 
so that the world can be drawn in to the beauty of Jesus. So he calls the church to be united. And then look at verse 3. This is how they are going to attain that. He says, this is what you've got to do to be united. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Why does he say that? What's the one thing that breaks unity more than anything immediately? It is selfishness. Selfishness destroys unity. I mean, anyone, if you've ever been on a team, any kind of team, sports team, work team, family team, you know what destroys unity is selfishness. When one person is all about getting theirs, of, of receiving recognition, of padding their stats or whatever, when you have a person that's doing that, it completely destroys all unity. So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The original Greek for selfish ambition is an interesting term I was looking up this week. It actually is one that was used in the political realm in that time. They would use this word for someone that wanted to achieve this place of authority. And then that person would put themselves in front of everyone else to be able to get that. Okay? So it's like this person is, I want this for my life and I'm willing to do whatever it is to get that and make sure that I'm going in front of everyone else. That's what selfish ambition is all about. It's like looking out for number one. And Paul says that is going to destroy your unity. It's really like this me-first mindset that is so easy to live in, but that's not what followers of Christ are called to do. He's saying, don't live life consumed with self. Instead, consider others as more significant than you. And as I was thinking about just that line, considering others as more significant than myself, I kind of ask myself this question. As I'm going throughout my week, do I see the people that I work with or the people at No Frills or the people at the bank or whatever, do I see their value? Like, am I thinking about who they are? Am I thinking about what's important about them? And I ask you the same question because if we're not even looking for the value in someone else, we're never going to get to the place where we're actually like seeing someone as more significant than ourselves, right? Uh, one of my favorite professors in seminary, uh, she taught a lot of my counseling classes. One of the lines that she said just stuck with me so much. She said, everyone sees the dirt. We need to be people that see the gold in everybody. And I loved that. She's like, it's easy to see the dirt, but as Christians, as followers of Christ, we need to be people that see the gold in others and bring that out. And so the first step to actually like seeing someone as more significant is to looking for the gold within them and then seeing that for yourself. Let's keep going because Paul kind of expounds on this idea in verse 4. He says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, I like what he's saying. He's like, everyone falls in this pattern of what's best for me, but a follower of Christ is living in a different kingdom. A follower of Christ is a different leader that is pointing them to what might be best for someone else. And I mean, these are not like brand new truths. We all know this, but it's hard to live out. And so when I read these verses, it convicts my heart like, yeah, God, I'm missing that. 
Help me, help me to do that. Um, I love how straightforward the message version is of these two verses of uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And so let's put the message version up there, can we? The message version says it like this. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. It's essentially that same message that life is not about me. And that is something that I think we often need to hear. And really, it's the mindset that Jesus had when he lived on the earth. So let's go to um, verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have other versions, they might say in your relationships with others, you know, have the mind of Christ. What Paul is saying is he's like, Church, we need to start thinking like Jesus in how we look at our lives. We need to start thinking about other people the way that Jesus thought about people while he was on the earth. And he explains how Jesus lived his life in the next verse. So verse 6. He's talking about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul is saying, look to Jesus, right? He's your example. Look to Jesus. He is your model. So let's just think about Jesus for a second. If there was anyone who had the right to live life for himself and put himself first, it would have been Jesus, right? It would have been Jesus because he was fully man, but as Christians believe, he was fully God. He was literally God in the flesh, like it talks about in John chapter 1. He was the light of the world. In him was light and life, like it also talks about in John. I love this in Colossians 1, and you can just write these down and read them later. But Colossians 1.16 talks about how every single thing that has ever been made was made through Jesus. Every single thing that's ever been made was made through Jesus. And then in Colossians 1.17, it says this, Jesus is the one that holds all of it together. So he made it, and he holds all of it together. So if Jesus for one second says, I'm going to let go, everything falls apart in all of our lives in the whole universe, and it's all over. Do you guys, like, think about that? That's what the Bible is saying. Jesus holds everything together. It's awesome. It is incredible. It's huge. We have to let our minds go to what is the Bible saying about Jesus? Because he is way more awesome than we even understand. So we got to get into this. And then talking about Jesus, I mean, he's, he's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He's the savior of the world. Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. He never made a single mistake even for one second of his entire life. It's hard for us to sometimes go a couple seconds without making a mistake. And he went his whole life without doing one. That is Jesus. If there was anyone, if there was anyone that had the right to say, I'm going to make this about me, it was him. But that is not what he did. He chose to become a servant. He chose to put others first. I think about myself. I put myself first all the time. I know I do it. 
And I have no right to. I am nowhere near the awesomeness and perfection of Jesus. You know, like I mess up all the time. I have no right to put myself first. But I do, you know? And I think about Jesus. Every right in the world to make it all about him. And he said, no, no. I am going to put others first. I'm going to focus on the will of God, and I'm going to follow that. So instead, he chose to lay down his rights. He chose to set aside his authority, chose to set aside his power, and became a servant. Jesus himself, he's uh, having this discussion with his disciples in Mark chapter 10, and two guys are like, when you're in your glory, you know, let us sit next to you. It's like they want this, this honor position. And then that kind of makes the other disciples mad. They're all having this little argument. And Jesus, he's talking to them. And he's like, you know, people of this world, they, those in power, they just lord it over everybody. But that's not how it's going to be with us. Because we're living in a different world. We're living in a totally different kingdom. The rules are different. The leadership is different. In the kingdom of God, you know, to be strong is to be weak. It's looking at things totally differently. And so even Jesus talking about himself in Mark 10, 45, and I think we maybe have that one. But it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus did. Let's go back to Philippians 2, 8. We're just going to keep working through the passage. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus chose humble obedience his entire life all the way to death. And then Paul adds on there, even death on a cross. And he throws it in there. We don't think about it like this, but dying on a cross is the worst way to go. Let me explain it to you. Dying on the cross was extremely painful, a very inhumane way to die. People actually thought at that time that if you were going to be killed on a cross, it's because you were cursed. That's why you were up on a cross. When you die on a cross, you actually die from asphyxiation or suffocation. And this works like this. The way you're nailed to the cross, it constricts your lungs, so it makes it hard to breathe. So the only way to breathe is to push yourself up so that you can get air into your lungs. But when you do that, you're going into excruciating pain because of the nails that you have in your hands and your feet. And so this just goes on for a long time. You're like giving other strength to get, to get a breath, but you hurt so bad every time you do that. And so eventually how you die is you just don't have the strength anymore to open up your lungs and you can't breathe so you're dead I mean this is a horrible way to go and the process is not quick it can last a really really long time so it's extra horrific the cross was designed to create such a horrific and detestable death that others would no no way want to do anything against the Roman government like it was put in place so that you do not cross us or you're gonna have to face the worst thing that we can come up with to kill you that is what was going on with the cross. And that is what Jesus faced, the worst type of death that would have been known to this community. Death, even death on a cross. And again, he didn't need to do that. He never sinned. He was perfect. He was God. But he didn't choose to look at life like it was his own. 
to do whatever he pleased. He looked at it like, I've got one goal, and that is to serve, you know, the Father in heaven, to put others first, and to carry out the mission that he's called me to. And he did that so that we could be forgiven and free. Hebrews 12.2 has been one of my um, favorite verses for a long time. And uh, it's one that I memorized quite a long time ago, but I love it. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when I read that, it's reminding me that I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. And then it says, for the joy set before him. And when I think about the joy, I think that was the joy of being obedient to his father. But I also think that I was, I was the joy. I was the joy that I could have a relationship with God. He went to the cross and he went through that for me. And that you are the joy. And you are the joy. And you are the joy. That all of us were the joy that was set before him so we endured the cross. That he went through all the shame for us personally because he loved us. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was living out what Paul calls the church to in Philippians like we read earlier. I mean, he did not go for selfish ambition. This wasn't putting himself, you know, ahead. He went because he recognized our significance which I think is just a crazy thought anyway. Like he recognized our value. He recognized how significant we were and chose to lay his life down for us and to put our own eternity uh, before his own personal pain. And that's what Jesus did. And it's amazing when you think about it and you let your heart go to that place of just taking in what really happened and why. Look at verse 9. Look what happened because he did that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no name that will ever be greater than the name of Jesus. There is no one that will ever be greater than Jesus. We've been singing about it all morning long. Jesus is so great. Jesus is so powerful. Jesus is awesome. There will never be a name greater than his, and there will be one day where every knee will bow before Jesus, recognizing him as Lord. There will be one day where every tongue will confess and say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. That will happen. And I remember when I was reading this passage many years ago, um, it was like the time where God started taking over my heart, and I was diving into his word, and I was just trying to learn about him, and I was trying to learn about myself. And I came to this verse, and I thought, well, if every knee is going to bow before Jesus, and if every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, does that mean then that everyone will be saved? You know, I was kind of wrestling through that, and maybe some of you are kind of thinking about that too. There are plenty of people in the world that say, yeah, everyone is, is going to be saved. It doesn't matter. It'll all work out in the end. But that is not the teaching of Scripture, right? Scripture teaches that it is only through belief and trust in Jesus that one is saved. 
You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. It is belief and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, that we are saved. And without trusting Jesus, everyone is left to pay for their own sin with their own eternity. See, the craziness of the gospel is that we have this God who is holy, awesome, powerful, just. This is who our God is. But we also have a God who is love. And because he's holy, he's completely separate from sin. Because he's just, he has to pour out his wrath upon sin. But he also incredibly loves us, loves his people. So he provided Jesus as the penalty for that sin. So you see in the cross that God's wrath and his holiness meets his perfect, incredible love in Jesus. That if we would receive that gift of Jesus, then the wrath is taken care of. The punishment's taken care of. There's no fear of death. If we receive that, and then his love is met because we get to experience him. That's how the gospel works. This is how this happens. And it's a beautiful thing when you realize, wow, like in Jesus, the wrath of God, the holiness of God, and the love of God come perfectly together. God is love. God is holy. They're both together in Jesus. And if we receive Jesus as our own, his wrath is satisfied because Jesus paid and we get to experience his incredible love for us. That is the way that this works. So it's only through Jesus and receiving Jesus into our lives. But the truth is that many people won't do that. They won't find eternity with Jesus even though they will eventually confess and bow their knee. So how does, how does that work? Um, Francis Chan is a guy that maybe some of you have heard. Uh, he's a pastor, writes a lot of books. Uh, he co-wrote a, um, a commentary on Philippians. And in it, he writes this. He says, Some will confess him as Lord with great joy and humility. Others will confess him as Lord with despair and anguish. You see, there's two ways of confessing. With great joy and humility that, yes, you are the Christ. Or really that uh, you, are, you are the Lord, but just despair and anguish knowing that. Missed it. He goes on and says this. Sadly, it will be too late for some. If you don't acknowledge and confess that Jesus is Lord in this life, it will be too late after death. And when I read that, um, I mean, I, I know that that's true. I believe that that's true. But there was something when I said it will be too late after death that just like hit my heart so much. Because I thought of, like, people in my life that don't know who Jesus is. People that I haven't really said, there's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus. And you have a God who loves you incredibly, but you also have a God who is to be feared. And if you don't want to know the fear of God, you have to accept the love of God through Jesus. And there's people I haven't shared that with, and, and it just convicted my heart so much. I mean, do you understand the gravity of the situation that is before us? You know, the Apostle Paul, he did. He did understand it. He did not want anyone to miss the grace and love of God in eternity with him. I mean, he lived in light of eternity, right? Which is what this whole series is about. Paul based his choices on if they're going to point someone closer to Jesus or not. That's the way that he lived his life. 
Jesus transformed Paul's life. And so he lived his life for others to meet Jesus. And he also wanted that passion to be so deep inside the churches that he planted, that he wrote to. He wants that passion in the Philippian church. He wants that passion in, or God wants that passion in the church of Ashland, in Riverview Community Church. Like that's, that's the heart that Paul had. That's what he wrote in his letters. And that's what God desires for us. And so again, going back to the beginning, he says, take your eyes off of yourselves. Live for unity. Be in the same love. Be of one mind. Because if you do that, people will be drawn into Jesus. And that is the reason that we're here. So you've got to do that. Like he's calling us. He's calling us to do that. So we talked about, like, be humble. You know, think of others as more significant than yourselves. Look to others' interests. Don't have selfish ambition. Think like Jesus. And if I just prayed right now and said amen, just sent you all out, everyone would be like, oh, <laughs> I'm super selfish. I should probably go work on that, you know? And then we're just like, well, I'm going to really try harder. I'm going to really try and be nice to people. I'm going to try and figure this out. But that was never ever Paul's intention. If you get into the Bible and you start reading actually what Paul wrote, he's never about try harder, be humble, figure it out. No, what he says is live out of who you are. Live out of what's already been done for you. If you have Jesus, you have, you know, the experience to live a totally different life. You actually can put yourself down and lift others up. You actually can be humble. It is in you if you have Jesus because his spirit is in you, right? We talked about at the beginning how science, you know, they're trying to figure out why do we think about ourselves so much and there's this part in the brain and all that kind of stuff. As Christians, we know when that started. It started at the fall. It started when sin entered in, when we just started looking into ourselves and now life is about us. That's when that happened. And so if that's like our wiring, if that's really where, how our default wiring is to think about ourselves, then we don't need to try harder. What we need is to be rewired, right? We need to have everything changed and fixed. We need Jesus to be like, I'm going to make you brand new. Ever heard this? If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone. New has come. That's what the Bible says. And so it's Jesus' spirit working in you to actually change the way that you think, to change the way that we think. Um, Romans 12, 2. I think we'll put it up on the screen, but it's, it's basically saying, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how is our mind renewed? How is it rewired? It's through Jesus and his spirit living in us. That's how this works. Um, the key to changing our thoughts in our lives comes through surrendering to the Holy Spirit that is within us. You know, if you've been around a while, you've probably heard that people accept Jesus and he's living in them through his spirit. And that is the truth. And maybe that's just like a good idea for you, but I'm asking you this morning, are you living in that reality? Like, are, are we, me too, are we all living in the reality that God who raised Jesus up, God who created everything, is also right now living in me? giving me new life, helping me to live a way that I could never have lived before? Are we living in that every minute reality? Living in the reality that I have God in me who changes me. I love this. Like, because we have the Spirit of God, we have the mind of God within us. This is just the last verse, but look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
um, chapter 2, verse 11. Paul here, again, he's writing. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 11, he says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And then he says something crazy, just crazy. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Let me just explain that. It's really, really simple logic. Like no one knows the thoughts in my head outside of the spirit within me. Like you're not going to know what I'm thinking unless I tell you, okay? The same way, no one's going to know the thoughts of God except the spirit that is within God. But then Paul says this crazy statement. But you have God's spirit living in you, so then logically you would also have his thoughts in your head. Crazy. It's crazy, right? You guys with me? Like when I, when I read this, I'm like, Whoa! that's crazy what he's saying. Like he literally says, you have the mind of Christ. Like look down, if you're in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, look at the very last line in verse 16. Paul's like, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Like we can think this way. We can do this. This can be our lives if we surrender to the spirit that is in us and live out of who we are in Jesus. That's how this works. So then the choice is, are we going to set our mind on the things of the spirit or set our mind on the things of the flesh? It talks all about that in Romans 8. I encourage you to read it. We have the choice. If you have Jesus in your life, there is the power already there to live like Jesus. Ah. As we wrap up, I just practically want to say um, a, few, a few practical things that can maybe help us grow in the mindset of Jesus. The first is, believe the truth. It's on your worship folder. I have the mind of Christ. If you start saying that, reminding yourself, well, hold on. I have the mind of Christ in there somewhere. God, bring that up in me. That's the place to start. Believe the truth. I have the mind of Christ. Secondly, what we did at the beginning, actually take some intentional time to think about what you're thinking about. Think about what you're thinking about. And actually, like, you know, sit down with a journal or just sit down and write some things out and say, what's been going through my mind lately? What are these thoughts? Are my thoughts pushing me towards God and towards others? Or are my thoughts just going deeper and deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole of myself? And if that's, if you're going into yourself, bring that thought before God and say, God, I know that you have something different for me. I bring this to you. I surrender it to you. God, heal that within me. Form a new path within my mind that I start thinking differently. Third thing is be in the word. And I know that's really big and open, so I want to specify that for you. I really encourage you to read the passages about our minds, uh, about what it is to have the mind of Christ. And so if you can write this down, Romans 8 is a great place to go. It talks about thinking um, with the Spirit. And then actually, we're going to get to it in a couple weeks, but Philippians chapter 4, also a great place to just read about our minds and read about the thoughts and what we should be thinking about. Um, number four, listen to the Spirit and work out the no muscle. Let me explain that. I'm reading this book right now called Play the Man uh, by Mark Batterson. And in it, he talks about working out your no muscle. You know, if you're, uh, if you're working out in the gym, you're working new muscles, and the muscles are getting stronger, right? Jesus 
he says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny themselves. They must be able to say no. So he's saying, when you feel the prompting of the Spirit saying, you know, don't choose selfishness. Choose to put someone else first. Choose to, you know, give, give something away or whatever. Like, start exercising the no muscle. Because the more that we exercise the no muscle, the stronger the no muscle becomes. Okay? So it's following the Holy Spirit and choosing to do that. And then finally, it's just prayer. Number five is pray. Like, God, I know you've given me the mind of Christ. And I know that I'm not completely there yet. I'm in a process. I thank you for your grace every day that covers all the times of my selfishness. I thank you for that. But Lord, heal my mind so that my thoughts line up with your thoughts. Do that within me. And I know that as we pray into his will, he's going to answer. He's going to form us more into himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you, Lord, for your truth. God, I pray for uh, all the hearts of those gathered here today, Lord. I pray that we would have an open heart um, to take your truth deep into our hearts. Lord, I pray that um, you would not be this outside idea, but this living inside, close and personal, you know, friend to do life with. I pray that that's what really takes place within us. God, you've given us the mind of Christ. Now through the power of your spirit, help us to live that out. Help us to think that way. Help us to see our lives like you see us and that more and more we would reflect you so that more and more people would come to Christ and have their eternities changed. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.